The National Archives podcast series, Challenges Facing the National Archives, Part 3, presented by Oliver Morley and Dr. Andrew Foster. This is Andrew Foster of the Historical Association Chair of the Public History Committee, and I'm with Oliver Morley, who is the Chief Executive of the TNA and Keeper of the Public Archive, Public Records. And he's very kindly agreed to uh, another interview because this will be the third in a series of interviews that we've done over the last few years, um, picking up really the whole issues, well, a range of issues, first of all, uh, possibly about the, what's happening here at TNA itself, uh, but also concerns about the wider archive world and out in the provinces and out in the county archives, and then also issues like the impact of the digital revolution. And this has been an ongoing debate that we've been having for the last, as I say, two or three years. So, Oliver, thank you very much for agreeing to uh, meet again on this one. Um, can I ask you the sort of standard question I think I asked you last time, you know, what's, what's been the key developments here at TNA at Q over the last year and what do you see as coming up in the coming year or so? Well, it's a, yeah, I'm looking out at the snow on this uh, yeah. cold day in February in a very cold room. So. Uh, Actually, it's an interesting place to start because one of the reasons this room is cold is because it's a Monday and uh, we don't have the public on Monday. Um, and so we um, switch off quite a lot of the heating on one side of, of the building. And that's allowed us to save around, compared with 2009-10, around 30% of our energy. Um, uh, which has, I mean, both in terms of efficiency and everything else, uh, um, uh, in terms of the impact of carbon as well, obviously it's it's beneficial, but certainly that's been one of the major things that we've been doing, um, and that's reflected in our investment in the site as a whole. So we were, I think it's fair to say, underinvested over the past um, uh, few years in terms of the Q site, and since we did um, and took the decisions that certainly. Was where we would be staying, and uh, um, our business would always have a significant physical component. Um, we made the investments, and uh, certainly we're very pleased with where we are now. So that's the first thing: um, big investment in the Q side, and I think it's really, it's really come through. Um, so we've moved our energy, I think, from uh, an F to a B. If you know those kind of things mm -hmm. on the side of your fridge. Um, which is pretty uh, pretty impressive performance, I think, for a 1970s building. So uh, that's one piece, physical infrastructure. And the second piece that we've always had as part of our business plan for Q is digital infrastructure. Um, and really our investment there has been on our new digital records infrastructure, which is um, a significant new repository for digital information. We're going to be starting with the Olympics um, and the records of low cog. And as I may have said before, the issue is not about um, preservation. Um, storage is cheap and actually uh, a question that's been largely sorted. We can all store quite large amounts of information and we can even be in a position where we absolutely know we can maintain it from generation to generation. The real question is how you manage the information and make it accessible. Um, and that's what our new system, a digital 
repository um, is going to uh, provide us is that ability to manage really quite large amounts of, of information. Uh, so it's those two elements make, make uh, um, I guess, uh, um, two of the big things. And the third would be the 20-year rule. Um, so this is something that's not going to hit the wider archive sector as yet because there are two phases and we wanted to make sure that that was in place. But the first uh, phase has um, just started. Um, departments um, are um, certainly starting to meet the challenge of basically having to double the number of records that they provide us each year. Mm -hmm. But as also has come clear, there are significant backlogs out there. Um, and um, we have, certainly for the first time in 150 years, been transparent about the records that are available um, and uh, um, that have been retained in, in departments that uh, um, should have been transferred to us. Um, and uh, um, we're now working with them to make sure that they can address those issues. Thanks very much. I'm sure the general public would be pleased on, on both fronts of the general good housekeeping and sort of the use of the site and the energy saving, but also on that greater transparency, the knowledge about what variety of documents are available in the whole 20-year rule anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you said last time when, uh, when we finished our conversation, which I think was just before Christmas, uh, in 2011 that we were saying what your New Year resolutions were and one of them was to sort of cope with the transition uh, for the 20-year rule. Um, but um, how are you getting on though on the other general strand that we talked before about the archives for the 21st century and mm. general strategy mm. and that was under revision and under consultation I think when we last spoke or about to go to consultation. Mm. Where are we now with the general strategy for the 21st century? So Archives for the 21st Century Refreshed has been released um, with, um, I guess, the next phase of the action plan. And what we were trying to reflect with that, as I said before, was being a change of government, certainly a change of economic situation. Um, and it has allowed us to be a bit clearer about um, what, um, what we think needs to be done for the archive sector as a whole and, and how we're going to work with, um, with the sector to um, lead that um, and to take us through these rather difficult times. Um, so the strategy has been released. I think we are um, working well on the various elements. The flagship part of that is archives accreditation, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure we'll talk um, more about in a second. Yep. Um, but more generally, I think you know our um, work across the sector, both on um, archive skills for the future, for example, and uh, um, uh, and the way our teams and, and development teams are working with uh, individual archives, I think, is certainly now we're in place. We should be, um, uh, and certainly we would hope that um, the sector feels that we're definitely up and running. We're engaging in the right places. We're working with them on the right things and we're helping them get access to funding. Um, and that's really the focus of our development efforts. Well, that takes us very nicely into an area that, again, we were discussing last time about the, you at that point, I think, had just taken over the role from the MLA uh, on its uh, winding up and you were given the role of looking into sort of the concern for the wider archive sector. And as you've just mentioned, accreditation mm -hmm. is a feature of that. Um, 
Um, but there were general concerns, obviously, that I was pushing on last time about the county archives and the view from the provinces yeah. uh, of the wider archive sector. Um, would, what do you feel about that? I mean, the way it most often crops up is a fear that in the localities people see job losses associated with public sector cuts. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you were telling me privately a moment ago that actually that is not as big a fear as far as, as it's transpired anyway. Um, but there are other range of, of things happening in terms of what's happening in the county archive circuit. Yeah, I mean, I think there's the SIPFA figures are showing that, that the falls are, um, uh, the decline is probably about 2% in terms of funding for archives across the whole sector, um, which is less than any other part of the, cult, uh, the heritage sector. Now, I think, again, as I said before, a part of that is that archives have always um, been run on um, a pretty low um, funded basis. I'm not sure my grammar was correct there, but uh, they, they've been kept pretty lean, I think, by local authorities more generally, who, for the most part, we find understand their statutory responsibilities, but uh, um, try and keep things uh, um, uh, tight. As I've said to you before, our focus really, and my statutory focus, is on the provision of archive services. That's what we're looking to, to see and that's where we have the, the powers. I'm not going to be there saying you need to retain X number of qualified archivists or I am looking for a quality of service and we make the point generally that you know a quality of service, a high quality of archive service is something that provides benefits to the wider community um, uh, and um, to the reputation of the authority and also has other benefits in terms of transparency, etc., etc. So it's a good thing, um, and we think we've been able to make that case generally to local authorities um, across the board. Mm -hmm. So tell me then more about the accreditation system that you're putting in place, which hopefully is one part of the way of raising the profile and giving more people ammunition to put the cultural heritage case now that it is in this wider bundle of library and museum services together, in a sense there is an opportunity there to raise the profile. But what is, how is the accreditation process that you're putting in place going to help that? So we're piloting at the moment with nine um, archives, um, uh, a real mix, deliberately. Um, so um, we're included in there, um, and uh, um, so the scale goes from ourselves down to much smaller uh, community archives and, and prisons archives as well. Um, what we wanted to do was um, through this pilot process and also through the um, uh, awfully named but brilliantly done co-creation process, um, uh, we want to get people involved in defining um, what a good accreditation is and, and should be. So um, we think it's working well. Um, we're going through the pilot at the moment. Certainly, I mean, as, a, um, as I've said in the past, a big part of the accreditation is being able to communicate and show to um, stakeholders what the benefits of having a great archive um, uh, is, um, and that the benefits are, and um, making sure that that gives compelling reasons for investment. Um, we think and we hope that that's going to do that. It's been carefully designed so it doesn't duplicate other accreditation work with museums and, and, and libraries. 
But we think it is absolutely the right thing to do. In fact, it was so much the right thing that I'm not sure if I said it before, but this was not something that we were, this was something we were going to do anyway, regardless of taking on the responsibilities for the, for MLA. Mm-hmm. We strongly believe in its benefit. Um, and certainly I think the sector as a whole is receiving it well. Good. Um, I mean, is that, we've talked before about what we might call uh, minimum service requirements and how we raise visibility of archive services and raise people's awareness and possibly within that wider bundle of the importance of a cultural heritage in a locality and how we make, you know, in a sense, put money on that in terms of what it is valuable for. But uh, I mean, what, uh, what are the minimum service requirements that we should be campaigning for out in the sticks? Um, well, I mean, it, it, this is a tricky one because the Public Records Act actually um, uh, basically is suggesting that everyone offers uh, um, a reasonably equivalent, I can't remember the exact phrase, but reasonably equivalent um, service to the one that we're offering here at, at, at TNA. Now, that, that may be um, uh, lofty, and I, I don't say, you know, we, we obviously invest and we also have the scale to be able to. So, um, we are efficient, probably one of the most, probably the most efficient archive, national archive in the world. But that doesn't mean that we expect a you know a smaller archive to be able to provide a similar service. We generally think that um, uh, it's a kind of you know when you see it um, when it comes to standards. We're not hugely interested actually in minimum standards. What we want is researchers to be able to get. Um, uh, good access to the records at, uh, um, and certainly we are not with the view that people should be charged. Um, now that is um, where I think most archives are, at, at, even at their bare minimum they're providing that kind of access um, and that's what we want to see really. Mm-hmm. How would you describe morale uh, out in the archive profession at the moment, in the sense that obviously there have been huge hits over the last few years. Um, and speaking as somebody who's gone round different archives, I would say that with the loss, for example, of county archivists in terms of the overall sort of status of archives, there's possibly, you know, maybe sort of an under question and, and, and doubts about well, what's the value of keeping archives and so on. I've heard jokes in some archives that they've been taken over by sports, leisure and recreation and one manager walked in one day and said, you know, well, can't, there's a lot of old stuff in here, can't we get rid of that in terms of total lack of understanding of the role of this particular department he or she had taken over. Um, what would you say, I mean, do you, do you carry out surveys about morale amongst archivists? We don't. I mean, that obviously I've, um, I've been out to um, local archives over the past year and also I've been to the various ARA conferences and uh, um, I mean the answer to that is um, it depends. It depends who you talk to, it depends um, uh, on very much on the relationship with um, the local authority or, or the organisation that runs the archive. In some cases you'll see um, archivists and the people involved in running archives really well valued and being taken up the chain and, and basically being made to run the whole heritage offer because they're seen as valuable. Um, and in others uh, things are clearly much tougher. 
So I wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm certainly, um, although it may sound that I'm rather optimistic, I am also pragmatic. I know how um, tough it can be, and people are um, not averse to telling me how tough a job it is. In its worst case, you know, if you are the local archivist and you have no help and a completely underfunded service, um, it's an amazingly tough job, and I um, am extremely grateful for those people to for keeping the lights on, as it were. Um, but in the other cases, I've seen local authorities where the support has been absolutely impeccable. It's seen as an important part of the whole heritage offer. They're well connected with local records management, um, and that's what we should aspire to. And in the places like that, you'll see very high morale. Mm. Um, so um, it's not something we can control, um, uh, but you know there are definitely incidents of best practice. It's not um, a universal cry of pain, I would say. Is it part of your role to keep an overview? Uh, you might refer me, I'm sure, to the uh, professional bodies for this one, but an overview of the kind of uh, the staff um, balance in terms of the profession because obviously again a feeling out in the localities I think often is that they come at a time when they're witnessing older senior experienced staff go often it seems in more more going than, than not and equally I suppose there are concerns at the other end are there enough youngsters yeah. coming through and those are the training programs that we know about and which the HA has been involved with for prize awards for mm -hmm. example the Liverpool Everest with and uh, London, the UCL, and so on, mm -hmm. and around the country. Um, what is the overall balance looking like now in terms of the profession? Do you keep an, a view on that one? We do. I mean, although um, you know, our relationship, as I said before, is, is largely focused on the services and ARA, um, quite rightly focused on the profession. Yeah. You know, we have some ways to um, uh, encourage. Um, uh, for example, by Archive Skills for the Future, and we're certainly looking to continue that, um, assuming we can get the HLF funding. Um, some of the work there by the um, uh, people involved has just been tremendous. I mean, the, the, the um, uh, really, really good work. Um, in terms of the wider balance, I mean, clearly there were quite a lot of county archivists who'd been there, been in post since the 1970s. Um, and as the local authorities um, started to look at higher paid staff, it was obviously going to be um, uh, an issue. And it's, again, very difficult for me to go up to a local authority that's cutting higher paid staff across the board and say, no, no, you have to retain this archivist. So um, having said that, I've been, again, really impressed when I've gone to ARI conferences, when I met people in the field, there are a lot of... Um, really well motivated, highly trained um, archivists out there. Um, and uh, um, so it's certainly not true that um, the profession itself has been hollowed out, but there's still a challenge. Mm. Um, and certainly we would want to see um, the right kind of qualifications out there in the field. We want to see continued professional development. We want to um, uh, make sure, going back to my original point, that archives can provide a service and a quality service does imply clearly that there is a qualified archivist. Mm. One of the themes in, in that that we were talking about a bit last time was the developing emphasis on 
partnerships and picking up both at local and national level the importance of partnerships with well, hopefully with bodies like ourselves the historical association but also with a large number of universities with staff in universities uh, where a distance might have opened up over the years uh, in terms of awareness and use of archives and so on but now I think the realisation at all levels that we need to get all those people engaged again in promoting the case for archives mm -hmm. as part of the wider cultural strategy. Um, and are there some examples of any a good practice that you would pick on around the country that you know of, or examples here that would signal what we ought to be doing, you know, those of us who are out there again in the provinces? Yeah, I mean, I, there are some really good, I was going to, I, I will, in, instead of giving you examples, I'm going to refer you, because I have been out in the field, so I do have examples, but I'm going to refer you specifically to the, to the um, case studies in the archives of the 21st century. Um, refreshed document simply because I want people to read it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. What I would say though, and this is just a, a general caveat, which is um, that I am not convinced, and I have never been convinced by this kind of spend a pound on archives and get ten pounds back in the community. And I think I may have said it to you before; these things run into each other. But you know the number of times that central government or local authorities get those kind of arguments. You know, in the end, the thing about a good archive, and I was up in uh, um, Matlock, so there's there's one example looking at the new archive um, there for Derbyshire, and the thing about it is that you you don't necessarily know, you can't necessarily articulate the benefits in pure financial terms. But you do know that fundamentally it's going to have a really significant impact on both the heritage of the area, the community feeling, um, but it's also going to draw people who, who are um, more interested in that. And it shows that that local authority is, in a, is a local authority that is concerned about its heritage offer. Um, and, uh, and actually I think that's important in itself. Um, I'm sure there are financial benefits, but to be honest, being able to extract them in a way that really makes sense um, uh, to a sceptical um, local authority chief executive is not always the right way to go. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we talked before about an issue that is coming up very much in the localities, uh, where the pressures for outsourcing services is going on, and particularly applying to modern records and records that in a way are on the, on the edge of the ones that you're legally required to take into a county service. What, have you been monitoring that whole development around the country and have you got any views and are you issuing guidance and advice or is that something that's covered in your accreditation process? It is involved in our accreditation process. Also we're, it's something we're looking at when it comes to the 20 year rule because yeah. when we apply that to local authorities we're also very interested as to where they have records and and, uh, um, and how they're managing those. Interestingly, as a, from our point of view, we are working with some of the most likely outsourced partners anyway as part of the 20-year rule to talk to them about how best to manage um, uh, public records more generally. So it's something that is a trend. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It just needs to be managed properly and people partners need to understand this isn't just a warehousing question, it's also about access and preservation quality. 
I think that's that issue of warehousing is has become a kind of a, an issue out in, in in the provinces again that uh, people are very concerned that about access that, that yes the collection or security side of things seems to be taken care of that access is looking as though that's going to be less less open ironically at a time as you say when greater transparency about the sheer volume of records available out there yeah uh, there's a kind of tension going on uh, I think I think you're right, but um, again, you know, the infrastructure for getting access, particularly for those more recent um, records. So you have FOI, you have yeah. ways in which you can, you know, you can get access um, if you need it. But uh, um, certainly, our view is that you know we do have to work with those kind of partners to make sure that they're, they're able to respond to queries. Another concern, I'm sorry, I'm picking up a lot of the kind of stuff no, no, that are coming from outside, but he is, uh, I think people are starting to get the feeling that, ironically, again, the success of a lot of outreach work by uh, County Archives, the raising of the profile over the last 40, 50 years in terms of making people aware about the importance of archives. Mm. So collections that might in the past have ended up on a tip, business collections and, and other things that, in a sense, people have become more aware and sensitive to the idea of the historical record. Um, but we're now starting almost with, with sort of victims of success, that there's a sense in which some people are starting to say, the record office doesn't want this collection or that collection. And um, you know what, there's a, again a tension, and I know that the digital revolution is one way of coping with that, but are you picking that up as well, that there are major collections that people are not quite sure whether a county or even the National Archives is, is a home for? Well, I mean, you know, we have very, for TNA, we have very clear selection um, policies anyway um, when it comes to public records. Um, in the end, you have to select. And I think that's probably where the historians come up against the archivists. Mm. Um, you know, it is simply not possible, and actually in the digital era as well, it is simply not possible to take everything. Mm. You cannot manage it, you don't have the capability, etc, etc. And I think there will always be a dialogue between historians and archivists who would, would like to um, uh, take everything. Um, but in the end, you know, archivists, you know, archives simply cannot take everything. Um, and they, you know, they have to push back. And I don't want to be in a position for any archives where simply they are obliged to turn themselves simply into a warehousing um, service because they can't um, deal with the access implications of huge amounts of records um, that they hadn't really intended to take. So I guess my answer to that is, in the end, if they can't take a record series, if they can't take a, a, um, a set of records they're offered, because they don't fit with their collection policy and they have a clear selection, um, uh, clear collections policy, then I would support the archive in doing that. Um, but as I say, historians would like us probably to take everything. Is it a requirement that every county archivist uh, and county archive, a public sector, should have a collections policy that is uh, can be seen by members of the public? Um, certainly, as part of the accreditation it is important that they're clear about their collections policy. We can't require it of people um, uh, because it's not a statutory obligation, yeah. um, but, uh, um, but certainly we believe that's an important part of, of an archive's 
That would certainly be a, raise, a way of raising a profile and thinking you know, of a local, some local examples. But I'm also thinking of, you carried out a survey um, on, it was the, the initially dear to my heart, the Religious Archives Survey yes. in 2010, mm -hmm. which I'm, I would say was strong on rhetoric and, and, and urging people to be more conscious of these things and on the various parties where it was obviously discovered that a very large number of uh, religious archives of different faiths are still in private hands and here, there and everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that the security of many of those is not, wasn't necessarily as clear cut in mm -hmm. 2010. Um, there was a lot of advice there about the need for, you know, collecting policies should be seek, seek to be more dynamic, quote. Um, on that particular area, uh, do we know whether there's been much progress made? On well, it, I mean, the, the way the Historical Manuscripts Commission um, element of, of our work has to operate really is that we um, catalogue and also bring to attention the value inherent in archives in a specific sector. So we've, you know, the year before that we looked at business archives mm, and yeah. uh, um, we're looking at architectural archives um, this year, as you may know. And we've actually just um, held a session with the Historic Houses Association as well to look at private um, um, estate archives. But in the end, the limit we have is that we can only bring it to people's attention. Um, I don't have those kind of statutory responsibilities. Um, and I think we've had a lot of traction, even with the even on the religious archives side, um, of um, getting people engaged, but we can't force it. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, it really has to be down the path of awareness and advice, as opposed to obligation. So again, there's quite clearly a role for other groups of people in society to work with archivists. Uh, both on all levels on that particular one. Exactly. Uh, whether it's collection or access or protection generally, it's, it's, uh, there are still some major issues in yeah. terms of certain categories of archives. Absolutely, and we have to keep working away at it. Um, we have to um, uh, make sure that we can address any issues that come up, and people should feel free to flag any concerns or issues around archives to um, our teams here. I mean, everything is available on the web, but mm. um, making sure that they have a um, uh, somewhere they can talk to us. Now, we can't guarantee to do anything about it because of that point earlier around. We can't oblige people, but we can at least have the conversations that, that, that can lead to you know, success and have yeah. done in the past. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that leads into a question we were talking about briefly before, about the the balance that I'm, you know, the balance between public sector archives and private archives, and anecdotally, people were telling me a while back that there were more job opportunities opening up in private archives. But that's always had the kind of danger that we run up against the issue that we've discussed before. That one of the big criteria must be sustainability, mm. and presumably that's very heavily involved in the accredit in the accreditation yeah, process. Absolutely. Um, and so. Uh, I mean, what, what is the balance like now? Do you, I know that in a sense it's going outside your concern, it's right on the edge, but, uh, but presumably you're a body that ought to have an overview for us, an HMC style. D I mean, uh, dif difficult to say, I mean, in terms, again, in terms of the archivists. Um, I mean, actually, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested. It's, it's good news if that's true, because it, it certainly implies that there's investment in the um, private archive sector, um, which is 
positive. I know that some private archives are having a very tough time of it. Mm. Um, but this is, you know, if you are going to get through this period, if you're going to get through this economic period, then um, uh, then actually investing for the long term in something like your archive is the thing that's going to give you results in the long term. Um, and we'd always make that point generally to private archives, but uh, um, but it is good to hear that they are they are investing. And as we talked, you know, it's a tough time in the public sector as well. So uh, if some of the opportunities are opening up in the private sector, then that's a good that's good news. Mm. But what kind of advice? I suppose it goes back to the accreditation also as well. But also, what are you giving a lot more advice? to local and private archives, I suppose, and those who are trying to set up community archives, which again are particularly uh, both to encourage but also possibly vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there greater information that they can obtain from here on sort of things they should be doing uh, or yeah. ways of campaigning or examples of Absolutely. the practice? And so, I mean, I, I won't, again, I will point you to our website, but, uh, and I think that was the, the some of the discussion that, for example, we've had recently when um, uh, running big sessions for private archives is, is that there's, um, there's uh, um, a lot of information that we provide on the things that matter to private archives, so for example, position on tax and, and uh, things like that, um, that we make readily available, that's available on our website, that they simply haven't used. Now that's basically a, a communication issue from our point of view, and um, we would urge people to go and have a look and see uh, see the advice that's there. We've remodelled actually the whole archive section of our website, so it's much clearer and easier to use than it used to be. Um, and we would encourage people to go and have a look at it. Um, and I would reiterate, accreditation is for all types of archive, it's not just for um, public archive. So it's something that any small local history group might look at with, with exactly. some... Exactly. You know, Once we've got it. through the pilot, it definitely it's something that, that uh, is, is intended to be flexible. When's the pilot completed? Uh, I knew you were going to ask me that, and I'm not sure when we're actually uh, um, uh, finishing. So uh, we've put in our, um, our response to the accreditation, so um, uh, bizarrely we're kind of accrediting ourselves. Uh, but it is part of a pilot rather than more generally, and it's a separate team here. Um, so it's well advanced, but we'll obviously have to collate the, um, uh, the information. If I were to, um, uh, my expectation is that it will be by the end of this year, we should be ready to launch for next year. Right. So uh, um, bearing in mind where we are, I expect that's what we're working towards. Mm. Thank you. Um, we've talked oh, quite a lot, uh, and you mentioned right at the start that one of the things that uh, you're doing is the digital side of things and so the impact again the rollout of the digital revolution and its effects on all sectors it cannot be denied and is obviously on the whole a, a very good thing although again we've talked in the past about some of the peculiarities that can occur with sort of online uh, search online systems mm. and how variable they seem to be around the country and how useful or not useful mm. uh, and obviously the, also the issues here that the front of house cataloging mm. and the constant updating and sorting of those I mm. mean have you got any thoughts on where we are on, on how the, the, you know, the digital revolution is, is now working its way through as far as we're concerned yeah I think we've uh, so we th we think our general feeling is actually 
um, some of the more basic questions have been answered. So we're confident that um, uh, we can preserve um, the information we're con over a long period of time. Uh, we're confident that uh, some of the really complicated issues that we've been dealing with in the past actually don't need to be dealt with. So um, we're not convinced, for example, that we need to be migrating um, file formats and, and things like that. So we're in a position where we, we think we know some of the basics um, and uh, can deliver on those. And certainly uh, it, it's becoming clear in, in some of the um, archives that haven't panicked, as it were, and, have, uh, and, and feel confident about digital that they can implement um, what, what is basically a basic digital repository without much trouble. Um, and especially, you know, when you can buy terabyte drives for um, uh, 50 pounds, mm. um, it's not a big problem to build that kind of capability. Um, then the next question comes, really, how do you manage that? How do you make it accessible? How do you build it online? Because um, there are large non-UK libraries, for example, who've just taken a massive archive and have no way of making it available to anyone. Um, and uh, um, I'm not sure that's entirely helpful. Um, so really it's then how do you integrate it with your catalogue? How do you make it um, available? That is the question. And that's what we're grappling with um, at, at the moment. So I guess the answer is collection and preservation is starting to become an answered question, mm -hmm. an easy question. It's then access that's the... Um, that is the question. We've been investing a lot in discovery. It hasn't been pain-free, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, people have certainly not necessarily found the transition from the old catalogue easy, um, but we keep on iterating, we keep on working on it, we keep on making it better. The old catalogue is still there for the aficionados, but we think we'll win them over in the end. Mm -hmm. um, and that answers a lot of our questions for accessibility um, and the digital repository um, uh, deals with the management question. So we think we're, you know, we're in a miles better place than we were two years ago um, in terms of manageability. And I think we're pretty much out the other side. That isn't necessarily true for the whole sector. Um, and that's going to be the question. Can we in some ways take what we've learned and make it scalable and simple for um, uh, uh, underfunded local archive services to just be able to pick it up and run with it. Again, that's an area, are you giving advice to those hard-pressed county archivists? Because I think some of them are on pressure, under pressure from county councillors and others who have a kind of inflated view of what they think the digital revolution can do for the world of archives uh, and also are under pressure that the first uh, line they should be doing is digitizing their material uh, as if that is somehow a big answer to everything and as if cataloging or collection or access anything else educational services are all now second rate as long as as long as you are digitizing and making more material available on digital than ever before somehow that will be okay as far as the sort of some county councillors are concerned um, do you give kind of advice on on that too we do and we also have so we are investing the most um, uh, important thing we're doing from that point of view is investing in the national register of archives and Archon and the various components. So we have a project called Opening Up Archives and the intent is that we will be able to provide um, everyone via our own services um, 
those cataloging services and, and access services um, in a way that makes sense for them. Um, I, the thing to remember about archives, I think, generally, is that when it comes to the heritage, heritage sector, archives perform um, at or better than museums and libraries when it comes to online. Mm. Um, just in terms of sheer usage, if you look at, at where museums and archives has, have been combined, archives have at least as much traffic, in a lot of cases um, more. And I've used the phrase a lot, but if it, when it comes to online, if we were a museum, we'd be in the top five globally. Mm. So um, it's um, it's something that archives compete really well on, and I would, to be honest, we want to help a lot. But the best thing for the archive sector is it, and our skills is if we all get very very good at um, working with digital records um, and working with digital more generally, and are seen as a sector which has those kinds of, kinds of expertise. Yes, I suppose. Uh, I've come across many people, and I'm included in this, where I go into a local record office and I seek out the oldest archivist I can find, and I seek out the paper catalogues, and I resist it when people say to me, it's all on our computer, that's all you need to do, and many of the receptionists push you straight away to the computer as if that has got everything. And I'm afraid that at the moment we're in that odd stage, which I know is an odd stage within the process that uh, must have happened in the print revolution as well, that we've got a lot of losses in between going on, that, that you need to really question people quite closely and to find the material that people will often initially tell you, we don't have that collection, we don't have that kind of material. And because it's not being seen as a priority to put it on the computer. And I'm, and I'm the last person to say, and in fact I never have done, to say that archives will go all digital. Mm. I, I just think that's unfeasible. And it's not even good economics. It's not even logical that you would digitise all the content, um, uh, particularly the content that may be of more interest to um, uh, an academic researcher. Yeah. Um, now, there are certainly some academics who are starting to research in a different way which is to say they're looking at large collections of records and they're doing some really interesting um, uh, large scale, so Old Bailey Online is a good example mm -hmm. of, of, of that kind of work. But that is a different kind of research and I have had actually major discussions with some academics on this. I don't think historical research will only go down that path. I think it will always be a combination. Um, for us at TNA, the goal is to make that as seamless as we can. So um, my ideal researcher is the one that moves brilliantly between digital and physical, um, and uh, um, and brings the two together in in a um, in a really interesting and also very skilled way. And I think that's actually where we're we're all going. Um, it's not to say that uh, only digital will will be the answer, or frankly, any physical. As an academic working with MA and postgraduate students a great deal, I'm struck also by, again it's a partnership issue, the needs for uh, both archivists and academics to work differently in the training of our research students coming through because there are a range of pitfalls in the large schemes that you're talking about, many of the data sets that we now have available 
there is a problem sometimes in the information given at the front end about the reliability of some, particularly where those databases are based on multiple kinds of data, and the problem that some kind of data is extremely good and other kind of data is much more suspect and, and more uh, difficult to pin down, like place and person and so on. But we have now got a lot more available in massive online projects and the research student can be forgiven for feeling there that's it and, I, and, and they're covered. Um, but I suppose that that educational role is is ironically, unfortunately, I think, out in the counties again. That we've seen a diminution of the number of education archivists as such, mm. where the role with schools and obviously the historical association is very concerned at the moment about the recent uh, discussions that Michael Gove has come up with about what he wants in the history curriculum and the kinds of support that many student teachers would need for carrying out local history projects and so on, that there will be educational needs as ever. And we seem to have gone through a kind of boom where educational offices, educational archivists were there, and I know that you've got key people here. Yeah, um, And a very big department here. But I mean, is that again something part of the accreditation that you're looking for an educational function across the board? I can't recall the details of the accreditation when it comes to education. I mean, I, I think to avoid the, the, the wider discussion on where education is going, I think mm. I, can, I can put it in quite simple terms from our point of view, which is that what we want people to understand, what we want students to understand, is the benefit of the original document. Mm. That's really our focus, to distill it you know, down to brass tacks. Now, that may be that they do that in bulk via um, uh, record sets that have been put online, or they do it individually. Um, but uh, that is what is important to us, and that's actually what we've been talking to DFE and more generally about. Um, uh, that, for us, is is the key, really. um, and we'll keep on working with archives and more generally to do that. And that's when it comes to local education. That's what we want to see: is, is original documents being used, um, uh, and uh, um, and part of the, the local curriculum. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I think we've gone through. I mean, the 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 one to end on, I suppose, is is, is kind of horrible way of putting it, but what are the future threats that we should all be sort of concerned about and wanting to help you with in terms of dealing with? Are there, is that more, I suppose, opportunities would be the other way of putting it around. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, it is, it is tough. And I, I think, you know, you've, everyone's seen the financial situation. I think, you know, what the sector has shown is that it can deal with a tough economic environment and um, and the same goes for TNA. I mean, in aggregate, the total savings is going to be um, uh, looking for around 29%. So we've taken more because of the extra 1% um, and 2%. Now that's fine, and we've been able to absorb it, and we've done it through a combination of efficiency and um, uh, uh, technology and, and, uh, um, and that kind of thing, and that's been good. I, I think the real question is what happens next? Uh, you know, is the sector going to be able to sustain further cuts? That's an interesting question. Mm. Um, uh, it is certainly a lot leaner and in some cases a lot more effective, actually. Um, so really the question is what, what happens next? Um, but um, we're optimistic, um, uh, for now anyway. 
what help can bodies like the Historical Association with its 50 odd branches around the country? One of the things that I'm trying to do now is to offer a set of uh, talks that in a sense raises awareness about mm. archives and doing it from our public history committee's point of view and offer to branches that you know people will talk and also that those talks would be interactive mm. in terms of picking up people's concerns in the localities mm. about their particular record offices or the provision and so on so that we collect information on what's going on as well. Mm. Uh, I mean are there things that the Historical Association uh, that we should be doing to help more, uh, working with your friends group, for example, or setting up friends around the country, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think friends are really important, both uh, from a, obviously, the, the benefits in terms of, of financial contribution and, and also, um, most importantly, flagging up where there are issues um, and, uh, um, and being a point of, of, of where, where those issues can be represented. We, we have generally a good relationship with the local authorities, we can go and talk to them, or archive owners more generally. Um, and, uh, but it's useful to have intelligence on the ground about what's working and what's not working. Um, and certainly, um, the more feedback we can get, um, either directly or also via the Archives and Records Association, which, which um, casts a weather eye on this kind of thing. Um, that is probably where the, the real help. And just generally talking about archives and making clear um, what the values and benefits are, how they're used in, in local communities, that's also a really helpful part of it, I think. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that you think um, you wanted to uh, give some publicity to? or? Have we covered and ranged reasonably widely as far as you're concerned? No, I've, I've always enjoyed these podcasts and it's a really useful way to just go through some of the, the issues as well. But uh, I mean, generally, I've been out um, and it was one of the benefits of taking over this, this role. I've been out quite a lot um, uh, and I've been so impressed by the work of um, local, local archivists and private archivists and more generally. Um, it is an unsung role, but yeah. they do just marvellous work, and uh, we are very grateful. And I would say, obviously, that we're very impressed by the standard of the dissertations that we receive for our prize award scheme from the archivists in training at the moment. And we've been struck by both the quality of the MA dissertations that get produced on those courses, mm -hmm. but also the range of topics that get addressed which do seem to span the sort of traditional problems of cataloguing for the ecclesiastical records at one end, right the way through to the whole problem of how we, the digital uh, issues are affecting us or how copyright issues now are changing and so on. The law has changed on certain things, Freedom of Information Act, data protection, you name it. And so there are sort of quite a range of issues that are addressed in those and the Historical Association has made some of those uh, archive um, dissertations available on our website mm. but any other connections that we can do we will obviously try our best to do thank Good. you very much thank you this talk was recorded on the 11th of february 2013 at the national archives Q. this podcast is copyright to the national archives all rights reserved <laughs>